Welcome to the Story Discovery Podcast. I'm your host, J.W. McAteer. Coming up, you'll hear a new work from our free online publication, Etched Onyx Magazine. Please join me and co-host Melissa Collings after the reading when we talk with the author about their work and all things writing and otherwise. This podcast and all related materials are a production of Onyx Publications. All works, stories, and poems are copyright 2023. All rights reserved. Today's story is Somewhere, Middle of, Nowhere, written by Kylie Ullery and narrated by T.J. Cedar. Settle in and enjoy. Somewhere, middle of nowhere. Spring in Iowa. Cloudless late afternoon sky. Late March chill hanging in the air. It's the chill that begins in fall, stays in your bones, creaks in the rafters of your wood frame house through to the first day of summer. Like clockwork, every single year. This is all you've ever known. Too late now for it not to be what you'll always know. It's a part of you, in your bloodstream. Like, if you leave, it will drain every last drop out of you. Sebastian is her favourite of the neighbourhood kids. Sebastian is also her favourite classmate at school. Sebastian never talks back to her. The other kids always have something to say, even though they never say anything in particular, talking for talking's sake, as if that were a sufficient excuse. Sebastian is currently chasing her around the dying flower bushes in her backyard. Her mother is sitting with a neighbour, watching them as they frolic like the young, happy, carefree, worryless children they are. Do you ever worry about her? Lorelei asks. Lorelei is nice. She's been a good neighbour. She's kept you company when you needed it and minded her own business when you don't. But she also doesn't get it. She has zero children of her own and no desire to change that. Her husband is nearly twice her age and mildly successful, which means that he's one of the richer residents of this sleepy Midwest town. Sometimes I do, but not nearly as much as I worry about her 13-year-old brother constantly sneaking off to smoke weed with his friends, do God only knows what else. You don't have to tell Lorelei much. You can remain vague, cliché, guarded. You can disclose what you want and she won't have the slightest clue whether the words you speak are truthful or not. Most of the time, you're not certain yourself. Hmm, that's not good. But boys will be boys, teens will be teens. It's probably just a phase. I'm sure he'll outgrow it. But don't you worry about her? Lorelei, bless her heart, has a terrible habit of saying considerably more words than necessary to get her point across. Another irksome pattern of hers is emphasising entire sentences when she really wants to get a particular point across, even though the person on the receiving end rarely cares to hear it. Case in point, here. Like I said, Lorelei, sometimes 
I do. You possess the habit of stating someone's name when you're ready for the current topic of conversation to be dropped. Lorelei, dumb as she typically is, recognises this personality tick in you. Well, it's getting late. I should probably head home. Thank you for the iced tea. It is mere minutes past 4pm. Lorelei's senior citizen husband wouldn't even qualify that as late. But as your patience for mindless chatter has quickly been exhausted, you keep this to yourself. Free from the overbearing presence of Lorelei, you watch your daughter running around, laughing and happy and full of life. Full of troubles too, but at least, or for worse, she is blissfully unaware of this. The same can't be said for you, the flaws you carry. Sebastian is her best friend. Her only friend, really. But this is entirely her choice. She doesn't want to collect friends. Fully grasps, as a seven-year-old, the concept of quality over quantity. Just take Marie, the popular girl in her class. The charming, witty, pretty, blonde-haired, blue-eyed, darling child of transplants from Northern California. Why they came here to the middle of nowhere, Iowa, why they brought their perfect all-American child to a depressingly quaint farm town at best, she comprehended immediately. She took one look at them, the telltale signs they give off, understood in that very instant. It was because California had bankrupted them, that they ran away like scared dogs with their tails between their legs out of shame and embarrassment, that they could no longer keep up with the Joneses. Iowa wasn't a logical choice, but it was convenient. Not many Joneses to keep up with here. They could be the Joneses, and Marie could be their trophy child, effortlessly giving off the impression of a child better than any other in town. And in essence, that's how it was. Marie had a long list of friends, most surface level, and admirers, most from afar, not able to gain the mutual admiration back from Marie. But she is not one of them. In fact, she pities Marie. That one's whole existence and self-worth directly depended on the adulation of others was one thing she could not comprehend. She had a little more sense of self than that. Marie had merely a sense of others. And therefore, her only real friend is Sebastian. He doesn't feel the need to garner attention, and that is exactly why he caught hers. You're called into the school by the principal. The principal. A comely, middle-aged black woman. How progressive, you think to yourself. An ultra-conservative, almost exclusively white Midwest farming town, and this thing was their selection. Her hiring had made the papers, but you hadn't seen it. We're never one to look at the news, be it local, national, global, otherwise. Stuck in a bubble, boring as it may be, ignorant, you would choose to remain. You exchange pleasantries with the woman, ready for the onslaught of bad parenting, wounded child accusations to follow. So I'll cut to the chase. We're worried about Annalise. You knew this was coming, but still, the audacity... And why is that? Your tone implies it's not so much a question. 
I apologise if there was a lack of tact with my forthrightness. I didn't intend for any offence. But, well, I'm sure you've heard of Sebastian. You nod. Okay, good. Now, we understand that young children have running imaginations and it's not uncommon for imaginary friends to make their way in. But we have come to the conclusion, after careful consideration, mind you, that it's crossing into something beyond childhood fantasy. You sit there in silence, a wry smile fixed on your lips, eyes staring unblinkingly at the principal playing psychologist. Ms Limpkin, we understand this might be hard to hear, but we only bring it up as a courtesy to you, in case you haven't witnessed Annalise's behaviour to the extent we have. Is this woman serious? I'm her mother. Mother! I understand. I'm sorry. I didn't mean it that way, but of course you're aware. Yet there was the slightest inflection in the last sentence that hinted the principal didn't think you were aware, that your reputation had preceded you, that someone like her could possibly be in the position to judge someone like you. You decide you will not say another word to the woman until she's finished with her tyrannical tirade. That's what happens with these type of people. Give them one sniff of power and they'll never let you forget it. You maintain your silence, taking the hits one after the other, never responding, never defending yourself, never losing your smug look of superiority, because you were above this woman. Of that, you were certain. We understand Annalise's father has never really been in the picture. So it begins. Exhibit 1. And has it ever struck you as odd that Annalise has no real friends? Exhibit 2. We just feel that if you have a talk with her, mother to daughter, perhaps you can get through to her better than we can. Slightly less accusatory, but your ability as a mother is still clearly being called into question. Exhibit 3. Exhibits 4, 5 and 6 quickly follow. You brace yourself against them. The lines delivered so calmly, so matter-of-factly, as if this woman's merely reciting the current mundane weather. Partly cloudy, chance of rain 20%, slight breeze out of the northeast. But you won't allow yourself to break composure, however shakily you hold on to it, underneath the outward shell of self-possession. Then the principal stops, pauses, waits. You won't give her the satisfaction of a response, of letting your stoic face crack for the slightest of moments, of dropping your gaze from hers. And so you don't. And so you persevere. Then not ten seconds later, your opponent looks down. Well, I suppose that's all, Miss Limpkin. I just thought it might be beneficial for you and me both, and for Annalise especially, to have a sit-down meeting. Point taken. Now, you have yourself a nice day, Principal Guthrie. The bitterness and sarcasm with which you deliver the title feels good on your tongue, but not as good as something else might taste. She notices her mother arrive at the school during lunch break. 
she is at a table, alone with Sebastian. This is how it always is. Separation from the pack. Independence trumping social connectedness. She knows her mother didn't come to the school of her own accord. Knows there might be some greater meaning to her being here. She comments as much to Sebastian. The other kids laugh in her general direction after she does so. She notices not because she cares, because she's observant. This is how she's learned to read people. Not by listening to the words they say or the laughter they make, but by watching the actions they take. Today she reads, understands about them. They have to make other people feel smaller in order to feel grander about themselves. But back to her mother. She's here for some specific summon. By some specific someone. She watches her mother entering the building, glimpses her through the windows, making her way down the main hall towards an office that is of most importance at the school, principally speaking. She'd love to be a fly on the wall for this conversation, but then again she doesn't need to be. She'll uncover all the answers after school as soon as her mum picks her up. For then she will observe, study, consider... And then she will comprehend, and the truth she seeks will be found. You return home from the meeting with the principal. What a way to begin the week. Monologue Monday gone entirely wrong. It's just after 1pm. Pickup isn't for another two hours. You need a drink. Reach for the closest bottle of cheap Pinot Noir tempting you from where it stands on the kitchen counter. Grab a glass and start filling it. You fill to the brim. An understandably heavy pour for a case of the Mondays. You should never have begun drinking again. Had been sober 14 months, then three years ago had decided you were over your addiction. But isn't that what all addicts think? Still, you'd been good, had limited yourself to one bottle of wine per week, had only once broken that, That one night a wave of manic depression had overcome you, followed by that one morning you woke up with a massive hangover headache, naked in bed with a stranger, 30 miles from home. No recollection of the acts that have brought you here. Had Sebastian come before that or after? You couldn't remember now, convinced yourself it didn't matter. Regardless, it had scared you into sobriety for 12 days. But then it became nothing more than a blip on the radar and you fell back into drinking. You polish off the initial glass like it's sweet lemonade and you're in a chugging contest. You fight the urge to retreat to the kitchen but your ability for resistance is compromised due to the pace of consumption of that first pour. You get up, black out for a brief moment from rising too quickly and when you reach the kitchen, you don't just fill your glass again. You instead grab the bottle, begin drinking straight from it, the path of least resistance to the goods. The next thing you are aware of, waking up to the slamming of the front door, empty bottle toppled over on the floor beside you, darkness outside. You look at your watch, 7.47pm, curse words, all of them screaming inside your head as you jump out of the chair. You rush around to the front door, Both of your children looking at you accusatorily. 
You begin your excuses. I'm so sorry, I wasn't feeling well, I must have fallen asleep. Trailing off when you realise they recognise you are lying. The stained purple smile, glazed over eyes. They know what it means, even though you swear they couldn't remember back when you had an actual problem. Maybe Josh. Certainly not Annalise. Who brought you home? Principal Guthrie, chirps Annalise, almost apologetically, almost as if she's aware, she is, that is the last person in the world you wanted driving them home. Then both your children turn left, walk up the stairs, away from their drunk, disappointing mother. You rush out back, grabbing the empty bottle on your way out, not caring how loudly the screen door slams behind you. And you throw the evidence out into the night sky as far as physically possible. You run to find it, hoping to find it shattered. It's not, but grass is too thick. You can't afford the monthly service anymore, refuse to do it yourself, your son refusing also without some sort of monetary reward. A punk, just like his father. You repeat the bottle throwing countless times afterwards, past the boundaries of your property, through to the acres upon acres of land owned by a cattle farming company. You may have hit a cow or two along the way, you're not entirely certain, blinding fury impairing your ability to see clearly. The bottle may have shattered more than a few times along your destructive path as well, shards of glass being collected by you instead of an intact bottle. This too you are unaware of. This too is beyond your drunken recognition. You stop when the adrenaline can no longer propel you forward, then turn around and begin the long trek home. It's after ten by the time you are back, failing your children for a second time in the span of an evening by not having provided a home-cooked meal. You're too tired to care or to make it upstairs to your bedroom. Instead, you plop down into the same chair that held you as you cradled the bottle of Pinot mere hours ago. And now here is a woman trying to tell her Sebastian isn't real. How ironic, as this lady's the one who doesn't look real... Should she go through the list of offences? Caked on makeup, pageant queen hair, four inch stilettos, bimbo sized decolletage revealed by a plunging neckline. She knows big words. She also knows fake tits when she sees them, for no one in her small town has them. And besides, she and Sebastian just now had clapped hands. Yesterday, they had a thumb war. The day before, they had a tic tac toe battle. These are things that required skin-on-skin contact. Individual brains in direct mental combat with one another. These are things that could not be imagined with any resemblance to reality. These are things that directly involved her and a boy. And by God or some other higher power, they were not fake. Her mom had driven her over an hour to the capital city of their depressing state, to visit a fraud. No point in her sugarcoating it. Might as well tell the woman this directly. But she instead decides to stay quiet. Instead decides to play this out, wherever out might lead. Sweetie, do you understand that Sebastian is a figment of your imagination? 
that he's make-believe. She creepily smiles up at the woman, playing into the psychopathic child role the woman so wants her to adopt. She feels slightly stupid for this. After all, it would be the absolute worst day ever having to come back here a second time, and she certainly was not helping her own cause. But how could she not have a little fun with the absurdity of it all? And besides, Sebastian was getting an absolute kick out of her brattish behaviour. So she channels her limited school play acting experience and continues the part expected of her, not caring in this exact moment if out led back to here in exactly one week's time. You had to bring Annalise to see the child psychologist at least once as a show for yourself and others, Mrs Guthrie, that you were at least trying to be a good parent, had recognised as soon as you arrived at the psychologist's office what a mistake it had been. This was not the type of woman that Annalise would want to connect with. Instead, would be met by her with disdain. The only reason you hadn't left the minute you walked into her office was because this first appointment was a free consultation. No word in the English language you liked more than that. Free. Well, besides wine and all the four-letter swear words that make up a shocking amount of your daily vocabulary, but still, free. It had a ring to it. It was hard to beat. When the session is over, the psychologist asks to speak with you in private. She tells you that Annalise does seem to struggle with something more than simply a wild imagination. She won't commit to a specific issue, cites multiple types of personality disorders, says she will need a couple more visits with Annalise to help determine the root issue. But of course, money and then more money. You sarcastically thank her, telling her another appointment will not be necessary. Abruptly leave her office, but not without first snapping a photo of the inside of it as proof of your presence. You're halfway to the car when you realise you left the exact reason you came here back in the psychologist's office. You mutter a swear word to yourself, four letters. You enter the psychologist's office as quietly as possible, but she is staring right at you, Annalise beside her, looking at you with a slightly amused, slightly abandoned look upon her face. You grab Annalise's hand, turn around to face her as the door shuts behind you. Snap a quick photo of your seven-year-old in front of the gold placard reading Dr Sheffield, the child whisperer, and with that you have captured even better evidence of having been there, as well as a built-in excuse for having forgotten your daughter in the first place. You don't ask Annalise how the appointment went. You don't need to, as you already know. And she's not the type to make small conversation, not even with her own mother, Instead, your mind wanders to over six years ago, freezing February morning before dawn. Blackest of black skies, starless, not a hint of wind. The father of your two children throwing three packed bags into the trunk of the rusted Cadillac you had shared for the past eight years. You are frantic, still drunk from the night before. He screams that you are toxic, tells you he wants nothing to do with you or anything that came from you. He means your children, yours and his. 
You fall to your knees, tears streaming down your face, inconsolable and yelling. He can't leave his kids. You'll get better, you promise. You swear like you've promised and sworn so many times before. He is numb to your promises. Couldn't beat them out of you. Knows if he stays, he will kill you. Leave the children to die or find a way to survive on their own. He never had loved you, and the words burned more than the bitter cold air for you knew they were true. Why he stayed for as long as he did, you will never know for certain, though you suppose you can chalk it down to the often inexplicable nature of human behaviour. Why he left a briefcase stuffed with $25,000 worth of cash before abandoning you, you can begin to guess at. It could have been a bribe to keep your mouth quiet. You knew he was mixed up in some funny business. Knew that before you willingly had children with him. Allowed them to be born into a house full of danger still. But you never felt guilt about it. Were incapable of feeling guilt at any point in your life. All you felt now was numb, empty, depleted. Regardless, that should have scared you out of your binge-drinking habits, but that didn't happen until nearly two years later when you pulled the classic I'm-an-alcoholic move and crushed your newly purchased, sufficiently used car dead-on into a power pole at 31 miles per hour. Both your children were in the car. It was a miracle that none of you were badly injured, scratched and bruised and shaken up, but otherwise you were physically unscathed. But what about mentally, emotionally? And to this day, you aren't certain whether the crash was an accident or deliberate act on your part. But it had been a wake-up call. Get help or lose your children, they had said. You had hesitated for a brief second, but only the briefest. It was the alcohol thinking, not you. You loved your children. Alcohol hated them. So you had gotten the help gone to the meetings, talked about your most deep-seated problems to strangers, put the bottle down and out of sight, but was it ever out of mind, proceeded on the straight and narrow for 14 long months, and that had been enough for you. You could control alcohol. Alcohol couldn't control you. And you were right, for the most part. And you ask yourself now, is the most part good enough? Her worries of return were set aside immediately. She would never be coming back to this miserable birdbrain's office again. This much was apparent as soon as her mother had snapped the photo of her outside the door. She had gotten considerable enjoyment out of screwing with the woman, but not nearly enough to willingly go back there another time. And though she had expected her mother to have the same idea going into the ordeal, after all, she knew her mother wasn't about to shell out money unless there was a figurative gun to her head. It was nice to have the physical evidence to back up that belief so soon after. She thinks of her mother now as they both sit in silence on the long, boring drive home, unchanging scenery passing them by, begging to be ignored, as they too ignore each other, at least verbally. She genuinely loves her mother, though in part this is due to how broken she is, like an abandoned child that needs fixing. And despite her love, she doesn't want to be anything like her mother. Staying in Iowa is only part of it. She will get far away from this soul-crushing state 
as soon as physically possible. Already has plans to run away with Sebastian as soon as they are old enough to survive on their own. But more than the physical location, it's the psychological state of a mother she could never identify with. Her mother's struggles with alcohol were just the tip of the iceberg. But what about the sexism? Her mother could genuinely convince herself to this day it was okay for a man to hit a woman, that a woman's role meant never lifting a finger to work, even if the man deserted her and she were left to fend for herself, even if it meant her children would grow up their whole lives with stomachs never quite satisfied, with no birthday gifts ever given, with maternal love, what she could muster of it, the only present ever showered upon them. And the racism. Her mother looked down upon anyone with a skin colour not categorised as white, and blacks were the worst of all, the scum of the earth. Though she would never outwardly admit it, the grudge she carried might as well have been tattooed upon her skin. When Sebastian had been black on a couple occasions, her mother had asked what tasks she had him completing on those days. Field work? Tending to the crops, perhaps, her mother had suggested. When she had corrected her mother and told her that Sebastian was her friend and not her slave, despite the colour of his skin on any particular day, her mother had laughed, calling her a silly girl and telling her that one day she would learn. She partly couldn't blame her mother for these character flaws. After all, she was a product of where she was born and raised, in a town where the population was essentially 100% white where purebred Caucasians virtually only ever came across other purebred Caucasians, where men worked and women raised children, love of the similar and shunning of the different was somewhat understandable. But unlike her mother, she was not a sheep, would not follow where the sheep went, would not listen to what the sheep told her to do, would not like or hate who the sheep told her to like or hate, would break out from the pack in a town that tried to push you into it from the moment you were pushed out into this world. Push, push, push. But she would pull. You had been eight years old, just one year older than your daughter now. Your neighbours had so many animals, like they were operating a farm except the only people who benefited from the eggs the chickens produced, the succulent meat the pigs and cows offered when it was their time to die, was them, your neighbours. They never once offered your parents even a morsel, even just to help out their starving child, you, even when they knew your family was struggling, stomachs grumbling all through the night and well into the day. So as far as you were concerned... The corgi had it coming, and besides, it was an accident. You had kicked at it merely to scare it, didn't intend to actually connect with its body, certainly not with as much force as you did. It was the perfect point of contact, the toe of your boot striking square in the neck. You suppose it hit dead centre on the Adam's apple, if dogs had such a thing. But wherever it hit... That dog was dead less than 30 seconds later. You felt an overwhelming sense of fear, but only for a fleeting second. Then you felt something else. You had come to a remote spot on your parents' property to have some time for yourself, 
to get away from the dirt-filled wood frame box your parents mistook for a home. Incorrect beliefs. Unhappy childhood. The lead. The follow. Unavoidable consequences for you and for the dog as well. It chose the wrong day to look for someone to play with. Or perhaps it just chose the wrong child. Regardless, fatal decision. Dead dog, comatose childhood. Something along those lines. But then you were alone, unperturbed and flooded with that feeling that was hard to come by in this deadbeat farm town. Relief. Yet you also felt something else. Something cunning. The desire that you shouldn't be found the culprit. The need to cover up your own guilt, even though you felt not the slightest tinge of it. And there would never be an admission of it. Now you lived in a town similar to the one you grew up in nearly 200 miles away. Which, for someone who had never left the state, may as well have been galaxies away. Both your parents were now dead. Had left this life before you could even provide them with grandchildren. Not that this made you feel any worse about it. Now you couldn't come clean, tell them all the truths you kept hidden beneath the lies. Not that this would have made you feel any better about things, and not that it would have ever happened. Yes, that was it. Before you could have told them, now you never would be able to. Funny how much difference a single letter can make. Or in this case... Make no difference at all. Dry dust bowl heat. The familiar Iowa summer stench filling the nostrils. Flying specks of dirt inserting themselves into the corners of eyes. An end of July invasion. Routine stickiness. The baking in the flaming hot sun come to be expected. Two kids playing in the backyard. One real, the other not. But who's to say... Perhaps what lives in one's head is more real than what lives outside of it. Perhaps if you could tap into the make-believe as well as your daughter could, you wouldn't be here now. You'd have created a reality far away from the farmland state you had lived in for the entirety of your 36 years, had never once strayed out of in that time. Perhaps you would be on a tropical island somewhere in the Indian Ocean Hair matted and salted from swimming in the sea for too many years. A man who truly loved you by your side at all times. No children to burden you like now. Maybe you'd even have a Sebastian of your own. Maybe, even on certain days, he'd be black. You've just listened to... Somewhere, Middle of, Nowhere, written by Kylie Ullery. And we have Kylie on the show today to talk about this piece and writing life in general. Welcome to the show, Kylie. Thank you, and thank you for having me. So happy to have you on. I am also joined today by two guests, the intrepid Melissa Collings. I love intrepid. (laughs) Hello, hello. Very good. And we are introducing one of our new narrators, T.J. Cedar. Hello from Naughty Person Corner. <laughs> Naughty Person Corner? <laughs> I might have to translate for your Australian accent on occasion, I'm afraid. <laughs> no, people will be so charmed that they won't even care. Yeah. Uh, okay, sounds good. 
All right. So, Kylie, one of the first things we do, so the listeners have just heard this piece, and one of the first things we do is talk a little bit about yourself. Give us some background about yeah. who you are and why you write. Absolutely. My name is Kylie, as you know, um, but I do respond to anything remotely similar to that. Kelly, Keely, <laughs> Kaylee, as we were talking before we came on here, um, right. I have a very unique spelling. So, yeah, I kind of get used to responding to anything similar to that. Um, but I currently live in Athens, Georgia, which for those of you who don't know is where University of Georgia is located. Uh, so go dogs. Um, <laughs> so yeah, and I currently work in real estate with a focus on residential sales and marketing. Um, and I've actually done that for my goodness, like the past 12 years now. So it's wow. been a while, a wild market. Yes, a wild market for sure um, has been for the past couple of years. So it uh, keeps you on your toes, that is for sure. But uh, fun little fact about me, I grew up playing um, competitive junior tennis. So traveled all around the country for it and uh, on occasion around the world. So it was a pretty amazing childhood. I actually um, then ended up playing at Vanderbilt on the varsity women's tennis team for four years there and that was a really amazing experience and I don't really play anymore sadly I've kind of transitioned to pickleball which is of course taken the country by storm so I've kind of transitioned to that but you know sports is a very big part of my life so and always will be that's great yeah why why did you transition out of tennis is it just hard, was your body getting old and your knees couldn't yeah, take it anymore I mean, or? <laughs> partly yes um i get i mean i started playing when i was like five years old yeah. um, wow. and then basically you know very competitively and very intensely until i graduated from college when i was 21. um so you know 16 years is a long time and i still played like every you know, a couple times a week after I graduated. But I think once I was through college, I was like, okay, competitive tennis career is over and I just want to do it for fun. Um, yeah. But yeah, in the last couple of years, I have noticed it's getting harder on the body. That is yeah, for sure. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty <laughs> intense. Pickleball is much better. Um, and I like it. It's social. Still get a really good workout as well, but it's definitely easier on the body. And I appreciate that now that I'm into my 30s. So yeah. That's good. I've never tried pickleball. I've seen it. It's fun. It's fun. It's very fun. Cool. Now, one thing that you are that's not maybe not as active that's interesting to me is a craft cocktail enthusiast. You did not mention that in your materials or in your in your introduction here. Yes. Yes, I enjoy a cocktail. Um, and one of the things like that my boyfriend Max of five years. Um, got really into during the pandemic when everybody else was baking bread, he started getting into like home bartending and really built up his bar. So I kind of, um, you know, benefited from that and got to try a lot of his concoctions, which was super fun. But yeah, we just, we love cocktails and kind of crafting new drink ideas. I'm a gin lover. That is my liquor of choice. So anything yeah. gin based, um, I really enjoy, but yeah, I just, I don't know. I love, I, I had, a dream like five years ago and it really hasn't developed any more than just being initial thought in my mind of opening like a gin bar one day so we'll oh, see maybe neat. you know 10 15 years down the line if that actually comes to fruition but um, wow that's great yeah, yeah. well do, do you have a name for this bar 
Surely you do. Oh, that's a good Come question. on, I want to hear it. <laughs> the only thing, and this is like kind of corny, but I don't know. And I'm sure it wouldn't actually be called this, but the first thing that popped in my to my head was kind of a play on the NBA kind of playoff season, the winner go home, but gin or go home. Because my thought would be, we only serve gin in terms of like liquor. Um, oh, that's what you get. Yeah. If you're going there, you're going there for gin. Um, I like it. Like know creative. what you're getting into. Home? Yeah, gin or go home. So yeah, yeah. very cool. That's cute. That's well, entirely just... not where I went. I was like, you know, you could call the bar something like Mother's Ruin. <laughs> <laughs> Just an alternative idea there. Yeah. Or bath, you know, bathtub distillery. Right? Yeah. No, this is true. Yeah. Yes. I, this is very I'm sure true. she's taking those down. Uptown right. Moonshine would be another one that I could Wait, suggest. Wait, say that to. one again. Uptown Moonshine. Uptown Moonshine. I like it. Okay, I like that. Yeah, one too. I am filing these away in the yeah. Yeah, mental in cabinet. The, in that the trash is for drawer, sure. Right. <laughs> File 13. So I'm right. curious, you're a real estate agent, you're a gin yes. aficionado, you know. <laughs> I wouldn't say make, that, of, but... make of that what you will about her weekend entertainment. And you write <laughs> and you play tennis at college. Yeah. What, what did you do academically at college to bring so, you to this unique combination? I know. So my major in college, it was specific to Vanderbilt. So you won't find this major like any other university. It was called Human and Organizational Development. HOD for short is what we called it because that's a mouthful. But it was very broad and it had like a bunch of different tracks you could go into. I did the international business track, which is not obviously related to real estate at all. <laughs> but um, I was taking Mandarin in college wow. and I was like, well, you know, it kind of fits. Um, unfortunately, at, after college, I stopped taking Mandarin, so I've basically forgotten everything I learned. But um, that's another story for another time and place. Yeah, I bet it's there somewhere. Yeah, yeah Nihau. a few words. Yeah, yeah Nihau. Like, there you go. Oh, I never knew. <laughs> you know as much as I do, basically. <laughs> that's all I know. <laughs> but um, no, it, what kind of happened? I almost fell into real estate in a way because I. Tennis was like my whole life growing up. Um, yeah. You know, I played it competitively, even throughout college. It was, you know, a big portion of my life. So I didn't really know what I wanted to do after that necessarily. Um, so I was a little bit stuck professionally. And just so happens that my dad is a real estate broker. He's retired now, but he was at the time. Mm -hmm. um, and so he's like, well, while you're trying to figure it out, why don't you just get your real estate license, see how you enjoy it. And as you figure things out, well, turns out I very much enjoyed it. And I yeah. kind of, you know, continued on my way in real estate since then. Um, I was licensed in Florida for like nine-ish years before we moved up to Georgia. Reason being my boyfriend, um, he actually just graduated from the law school at University of Georgia. But that's what oh, brought us here. Yes, him, I know. Yeah. Yes. And so um, then I got my license here in Georgia as well. Um, so it's been fun to, you know, be licensed in two different states, two totally different markets, and I enjoy it. Yeah, very cool. Yep. All right. Well, we've taken a long time on the introductions, but now, now I have yeah, many sorry. more questions. But I know. We're going to come swing back to some of yeah, these Yeah, we'll come things. back to some of these questions. Perfect. So, Well, let's talk about the story a little bit. I told you when I accepted this, I was <laughs> I turned off by yeah. you know, this very strong, and I mean, I think a lot of readers would have that reaction. Um 
to basically, you know, some racism in here, but I pushed yeah. through it and I was really glad I did. So I'm glad um, to hear that. You tackled a tough subject in, or topic anyway in your story. And tell us about, you know, why you decided to write this or where the idea came from. Yeah, so it's actually funny. Um, this was one of the first pieces I ended up writing um, when I was first getting started into writing short stories and um, really trying to develop that writing craft. Um, and this was probably back about eight to nine years ago. Yeah. Um, so really, it was like one of the first three pieces I ever wrote. Wow. Although it has changed oh, quite a bit since I first oh, completed it, um, you know. Uh, not necessarily the storyline or the overall trajectory of the piece, but as any writer knows, like the more you practice, the better you get at writing, you develop your exactly. own personal writing style and your voice and so on and so forth. So yes, as those things kind of happened for me, I have changed quite a bit about it. Um, and I think it's improved significantly, um, at least in my opinion. Yeah. But yeah, so anyways, it was one of the first stories I was inspired to write when I first got into writing. And because of that, it will always hold a special place in my heart because it really was like a true jumping off point for me. Mm -hmm. um, but as for the inspiration behind the story itself, the opening and closing paragraphs, which really establish a sense of place in the story, um, they just kind of popped into my head one evening. And I knew like right away that there would be a story based around those paragraphs um mm -hmm. and I think for me like I really want to create something that was really tied to a specific place and characters that are truly products of like where they're born and raised um mm -hmm. and I think that's you know pretty prevalent throughout the story and for me I love to create stories that the everyday reader and like human can truly relate to and I think in a way we're all molded by where we're born and how we grow up yeah. and where we grow up. And so hopefully, you know, it's a relatable piece to, you know, most readers in that sense. And again, yeah, I really just wanted something that was very tied to a sense of location. And like, yeah. these people are, you know, products of where they were born, basically, and raised. Sure, sure. Yeah. Well, well, the first paragraph reads like a, uh, a screenplay, I thought. It was like... <laughs> yeah, it does. It, 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 was, it was kind of catchy and yeah you know, yeah yeah, yeah. Ahead, i really listen. enjoy your writing style oh thank uh, I, you. I was immediately drawn in and yes you tackle some tough concepts but it's yeah. real life i mean things like that no, do exactly. exist in real world i was over i was eavesdropping on somebody at the coffee shop and they were having a conversation that was that was a bit racist and i and i was thinking wow you know this happens in in the real world mm -hmm. um, but one thing I wanted to say is yep. oh, with this story and I'm, what your goal is in writing I thought this was really prettily said oh, it's prettily a word I think really it is. nicely worded I think it is but I love to, I love to just add ly to things even though adverbs are like a no-no but you know I just love doing that and turning it in anyway okay you said that you you love to write stories that the reader can empathize and grieve and love and succeed in step with the humans in the story. And I just thought that was a really nice thing to say. It really is true. And it really feels true about your story okay. where you can, you see somebody struggle on the page. You feel, I mean, this is, this is some damage that's happening yeah. on the page mm -hmm. and you know, you, you cannot look away, but you hurt for watching it. You feel bad that they're going through it. You're angry because they are that way. You know, you're feeling all these emotions. Mm -hmm. um, and so I think when you have those emotions brought out on the page, you really have the reader's attention. 
and you, and you let them experience things. Yeah. Well, I'm glad that shown through for you then, because that's, that's what I really am striving to create with my stories. Yeah. And you also said it was not an escape. Yeah. But, but instead to find. Yeah. I love that too. I just, beautiful you've said beautiful things in your intro (laughs) materials about what you're trying to do and I think that's really pretty I that those are the things that I want to do with writing as well is to write that human story that people can relate to that is not always pretty no it isn't right a lot of times it's ugly yeah and it's real but you can relate to that because everybody has some ugly in their life and it's very true Yeah. yeah all right well let's um the next thing I want to ask about, which is fascinating that this is one of your earlier pieces. So second person. Yeah. Wow. You, you're, you started off, you're like, I'm just going to put you in the, in these shoes. You. Yeah. I, yeah, I don't, I don't really even know where I guess that came from. I often do write in second person. Um, Interesting. And again, I think it does again have to do with the fact where I do want the reader to be able to relate. I think when you write in second person, it almost puts yourself more so in that person's shoes than if you were to be writing in third person, for example. So I think it might just subconsciously have to do with that. And I don't even realize that was why I'm doing it, but maybe, maybe that is because I mean, in a way it does like, you know, when, whenever I read a story in second person, like I always do feel like it puts, puts me more in that character's shoes um, yes. than it would otherwise so right right I don't really find a ton of second person out there so I think it's really cool I, I it intrigues me when I when I get some of those so yeah. I congratulate you on trying that <laughs> you. or writing in that style <laughs> and hopefully it, it some semi succeeded at least <laughs> yeah definitely I think we I think you have to either go all the way one way or the other yeah because I, I write I usually write in first person okay but I'll throw some use in there and I'm always attacked. Anytime somebody <laughs> reads it, they're like, oh, you can't put that there. You can't put that you there. It's very distracting for me. And I'm like, I enjoy the you. Yeah. <laughs> Let me do me. But yeah, 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 exactly. Let me put a few in there. But I think the story told from the second person throughout the whole thing, very intriguing. Um, and it's very interesting. Yeah. So. Yeah. And okay. I knew, I know, because obviously I jump between two main characters in the second person obviously Mm. um so i knew it would take a little bit of time to get oriented with that for the Mm. reader but that's okay i mean that's the part of reading i love in a way too it's like it's an exploration you're finding things out you're figuring things out as you go along so i think that's right kind of beautiful in a way to keep people guessing for a little bit before they really understand what your purpose is and what's going on i don't think that's necessarily something to shy away from I agree. And well, and it's written well enough in terms of style and technique that it, it keeps you in. Whereas some, it's a, what you did was very challenging, I would say, because to keep someone motivated to, to read when they don't know what's going on, you know, it's a little bit challenging, but, right. but it was well written and it kept me going. And then after I kind of got like a rhythm, you know what I mean? And then, and I was in it. So okay. right, I don't know about everybody else, but yeah, strong work. Thank you so well, much. I know. Yeah. TJ. TJ's sitting there quietly, and I, I know, it's just making thinking me the same nervous. thing. <laughs> say some words. <laughs> the last time someone asked me to say that. No, I. My question to you is, for the reader, if they were to read this piece, knowing that it's so much, it, it's further back in your timeline of of development as a writer. 
Is it indicative of where you're at now? Or do you feel that the work that you're producing now has taken a different route? Because this is sort of dark, a little bit gothic. Um, where are you at today if you gave us a short story? Yeah, to good question. Yeah, no, that is a very good question indeed. Um, now, I would say a lot of my pieces are a little bit darker. They deal with loss a lot and, you know, obviously their losses can mean so many different things and, you know, conjure so many different types of emotions, but they are more sorrowful, I would say in a way, darker for sure. I don't know why <laughs> they have, I consider myself a pretty happy and positive person, but for whatever reason, I don't know what it is. I just feel like maybe the stories I've read and, you know, I've been an avid reader my entire life, um, but just the ones that are a little bit sadder. Like, I just feel like those really pull me in and maybe that's just what's kind of inspired some of my writing. And even yeah. though this is like a, a piece that I started eight or nine years ago, like I said, I have changed it quite a bit, especially in recent years, like the last year or two, um, just because mm -hmm. I have developed my, I think, writing style and voice a lot more, mm -hmm. you know, with practice and just kind of understanding who I am as a writer or as when I first started, I had really no idea. And like looking back at some of my earliest yeah. pieces, um, they're not, they're not oh, so good. It's painful. It is very it? painful. <laughs> um, but no, I mean, this one was like, okay, I was like, I can work with this and I can fix it. And I'm very happy with, you know, where it's come. It's progress yeah. and timeline. But no, I, to answer your question TJ, um, I do tend to gravitate to more, a little bit darker storylines I guess and just feelings and a lot of my stories do have to do with loss in some way shape or form yeah mm. nice so what do you do and have you done over the years to bring about or bring around you a creative or writing community uh do you belong to a writing group do you do classes I don't which is terrible which is terrible. I, I know. I really need to do better. Like, I need to be a better writer. I love writing. I just do it on my own so much. It's it's very soothing and calming for me, and it's just, like, my safe little space. So I think for me, it's just, like, I love to just do it on my own. And whenever I just, you know, need a moment for myself, like, what do I want to do? I want to write, you know. Um, and mm. like I said, it really is like a safe little haven for me. I'm not the type of person like who shouts to the rooftop that like I'm trying to write. Like, I don't know why, but I'm just a little bit more, I think because it's so deeply personal to me. It's one of those things I just like keep a little closer to the vest. Um, but I also mm. do know like if I did join a writing group and kind of just have more of a writing community in my local community around me, it would be a good support system. So I really probably should do that. Yeah. Everybody's different. I miss true. Uh -huh. Yeah. 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 And so, I mean, I, I love a good writing group, but I've also come across people that can be a little bit damaging. You have to really be careful. You have to trust the people that you're right. with. Right. Mm -hmm and everything. But that does beg the question, does anyone else read your work before you start sending it out? So typically that person is my sister. Um, we are okay. super close. She is almost two years older to the day um, for me. Um, oh, so her birthday is May 1st, my, I'm May 5th. Um, and I neat. we're very similar in many ways and I trust her inherently. So 
I don't like center everything I write and everything I send out for, you know, trying to get published, but like the things that I really feel strongly about, like, okay, I have a really good story here. I do like to send to her to get her opinion because, you know, as a writer, you can get so locked in your own world that you like, sometimes you don't Ooh. see something that's obvious or so it's like, it's always nice to have another trusted set of eyes on the piece to be like, Hey, am I right here? Like, am I missing something? And like, am I like, there's okay to have some gaps, I think, in stories and let the reader, you know, fill those gaps in themselves. But like, yeah. obviously you don't want to, you want to do that to a certain extent, but have the story yes. still make mm -hmm. sense. So it's like, okay, am I missing anything that like, does it make sense to the reader? But that makes sense to me. So it's always nice to have that second set of eyes on it. Like I said, that somebody that you trust and that, that person for me is usually my sister. That's mm -hmm. sweet. Yeah. How often does that change the trajectory of your story? Her, her feedback? Uh, not massively in terms, it's mostly like small edits um, here and there, but just like, or little pointers that she'll give me. Cause she doesn't ever want to try to totally change a story. Uh, and yeah. like, I think that's a good practice for me too, as a writer. Well, she'll give you like, she'll give me suggestions and recommendations and things she sees. Then it's like, okay, now what are you wanting? What are you going to do based on what yes. I said? But not like right, where right. she's, crossing lines out or being like you should say this you should do this like it's it's a very helpful kind of editing process that she provides where she just gives me honest feedback and like hey you might want to think about the yada 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 whatever it may be um or you know don't forget to like circle back to this that you talked about earlier in your story and which i thought was super powerful right. um like tie that back in partner yeah i guess that's yeah. true it is true that's she's basically your writing group. Yeah. I mean, that's true. That's, it can yeah. be a group of two. Doesn't have to be. You can't. Yeah, sure. <laughs> has she been inspired to write it all because you're writing? No, she has not. I'm just curious. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You never yeah. know. She's yeah. also an avid reader, like I am. But yeah. no, just for whatever reason, she did never really got the writing bug. She's um, a great artist though and draw like she doesn't do it for you know professionally or anything but she has that right, creative right. side of her whereas i cannot draw to save my life yeah <laughs> <laughs> can't draw a straight line even with a ruler i'm not even kidding <laughs> with you <laughs> so uh. do you feel that the mindset and the habits that you learned as a child being so dedicated to your sport and all those years of knowing that you have to keep showing up and practicing the same shots day in, day out, searching for a coach, taking on advice, has given you a, a great platform on which to develop your writing. Because to go back to a story over a large period of time and consistently work at it does seem to indicate a, a level of commitment and persistence that... Personally, I find very admirable. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> That's a good question. No, that really is a great question as well. Um, and yeah, from a very young age, like getting into tennis when I was five years old, and I started playing like competitive t tournaments when I was seven and traveling. A lot of times my sister and I would travel on our own, you know, to tournaments wow. when we were teenagers. And so we were very, we matured very young and we were always very self-motivated, self-starters. And that absolutely helps with writing because mm. a lot of times, like you might not, you know, have any inspiration that day or whatever, but like you have to force yourself to try to write because it's 
just a good writing habit to get in. Like, yeah, like yeah. writer's block is a real thing. I wish there was like a better term to describe it, but I mean, it really is. It is the true thing. There are certain days where it's like the motivation or the inspiration. I'm like, I just don't have it today. But like, still, if you force yourself to write and just get into the groove of just type anything on paper, just get it down. Um, you find that, okay, inspiration just naturally kind of occurs. So, um, yeah, I mean, that yeah. definitely has helped a lot because just the self-motivation um, that you have to have like playing competitive sport does carry over into so many different aspects of your life. Yeah, makes sense. So do you have like a time that you write every day? Do you have a schedule? Is it kind of because you're, I imagine as a, as a realtor, you know, you have a, a flexible schedule, which is beneficial in some ways, yes. but it might prevent you from... <laughs> yes. Yeah, this, it's know. a little bit of a double-edged sword, the flexibility in a way. Certain days are like absolutely insane. Like I can barely catch a breath. And then there's other days where it's like, it's super slow. And maybe all I'm doing is responding to a few emails here and there. But I have a mm -hmm. lot of free time. But the issue is for me, at least, because it's so flexible and there aren't any set working hours. It's not like a typical nine to five. I have a hard time setting work boundaries for myself. Whereas if somebody mm -hmm. reaches out at 9 p.m., I stress myself out. I'm like, I have to respond to them right now. When in reality, <laughs> um, like, unless it's an emergency, which it rarely is. It's like, no, you don't. Yeah. Um, but just I'm programmed in the way where I, like, feel like I have to. And I know I have to get better yeah. just for my mental well-being to, like, yeah. set work boundaries a little bit better, which also would make it a little bit easier for me to like have an actual designated time every night or every yeah. morning that I'm writing. Yeah. Um, I do like to write in the evening. That's for whatever reason, that's just always when I feel like I do my best writing. I don't know if it's because I'm taking like inspiration from what happened that day in a way, but huh. I just have always found myself I'm better writing at night. I like to read first thing in the morning um, when I can. And then writing is a nice like form of, therapy at night and just that's typically when I've found I do my yeah. most productive writing work in the evening and of course working as a real estate agent is a voyeur's delight really I was going to say the same it, thing it, it's <laughs> it's epic people watching I, I too have worked as as oh, a real estate sales amazing. agent many years ago and uh, I, I loved aspects of it others yeah. I wasn't a fan of but it's an ability it's a it's an opportunity I should say to observe people in some of the worst moments of their lives because the drivers for people putting their properties on the market are usually, you know, birth, death, divorce. Mm -hmm. yeah. Or a job know, relocation. A, a change of job, a change of circumstances. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. So for someone who has quite a delight in the darkest sides of life, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Um, it's it, it, observationally. Yeah, well, I mean, that's what we do, though, as writers. We we watch ourselves, we watch the people around us, and then we create stories because we're story-making machines at the yeah. end of the day. Yeah. Um, right. But your work allows, I mean, I, I think of the visual benefits of being able to see so many different varieties of property and, you know, design and expressions of personality through um, objects and all of that is just, um, Neil Gaiman talks about your life experience as being compost. And you just put yeah. it all um, in there and let it quietly compost away. And 
out of all of that will gradually become the the rich goodness for a story. And I do. I really like that, I really yeah. like that as is, well. Isn't that wonderful? No. You know, Such... it's a helpful way to reframe your own life experiences too. You're like, oh, okay, I'll compost that. I'll write <laughs> about it later. Yeah. yeah. And I'll sell yeah. it to Netflix yeah. or something. Who can say? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, that's a great point. And you have all these floor plans. I know. For (laughs) stories. (laughs) Exactly. No, I mean, but like you said, TJ, I mean, working in real estate, you do, you deal with so many different personalities and so many different situations that like reasons people are selling, reasons people are moving to a new area. So you really do get to see so many different backgrounds. Um, and every single day is different. Like I learn something new every single day. You are constantly kept on your toes, um, which is exciting. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, everything, there is a lot of stuff in my daily work life that I can use as creative fodder for my stories. Um, and like, I always try to like, you know, no matter what I'm doing every day, it's like, okay, look at everything that I'm experiencing or seeing as something that I could potentially use. Like, even if it seems mundane and boring, it's like, okay, you know, a stop at a coffee shop, you know, it's like, well, observe what's going around you. Is there anything that's going on that I could use for a story or that like I find interesting? So I try to do that in my daily life too. But um, real estate is a very helpful work background to have to kind of experience a lot of different people places and uh, experiences very cool well we are coming up on time here Um, i do have another question that i want to ask so are you so you're doing all this writing kind of in the evenings or when you can and do you focus on short stories primarily like this is one of our longer ones okay so no novels novels, no poetry um, my Maybe no, 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 oh, I, I don't know how to write poetry for the life of me. Um, I wish I could, but no, um, that's just not my forte. Um, yeah, I'm focusing yeah. on short stories for sure. Uh, my goal is to have a collection of short stories that I hopefully can get published someday. I've been working on it for quite a while. Um, really, I mean, two to three years, um, but um yeah. I probably have that long to go um, because I've kind of gotten stuck on some stories and I know I have to develop some more, Um, but that's my goal. Um, I would love to publish a collection of short stories. Um, Just for whatever reason, the short story form is something I'm really drawn to and that's why I enjoy writing. Um, This is definitely uh, somewhere middle of nowhere. It's definitely one of my longer pieces to date. Um, I have a couple other that are similar Mm. in length, but for whatever reason, most of the stories I write are probably in the 1,200 to 2,500 word count range. Um, wow. Well, 1,200, you're getting close I know. to flash. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, yeah. some, people, some people think 1,500 is flash, but I, I, I say 1,000. But yeah. But do, you, do you prefer one or the other? In terms of... Um, in terms of length, do you get a satisfaction from one or the other? I would say... Probably the shorter a story you can make and like make it a full story, like there is a sense of satisfaction with that. Cause it's like, if you can tell a complete story yeah. in let's say a hundred words, um, like that is such yeah. a challenge, I think, but it's really beautiful. Um, mm-hmm. But there, I mean, I guess on the flip side yeah. too, it's, you know, if you can captivate your reader for 4,500 words, say that is a great form of success as well. But I guess for me, mm-hmm. like, 
I tend to be a little bit wordier. So when I can like really create a story that's like 100 to 200 words, I'm like, wow, that's good. And I, you know, expressed everything I wanted to. And I told, I think, a, a story that makes sense. Like that is very gratifying for me because it's hard for me too. Definitely. It's hard that's for me super to challenging. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I think, I think a thousand <laughs> words is challenging. So definitely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But very cool. All right. Well, who wants to ask the last question? I think TJ said it should ask the last question. <laughs> the, the, the question that I have, are there any short story writers that you uh, are particularly uh, drawn to whose work you admire and would like to set as a benchmark yes. for your own? So my two favorite authors are Lauren Groff. She's done some short stories. I mean, she has novels as well, but she has a couple collections of short stories. And I just find her writing just absolutely breathtakingly beautiful, fascinating. Her stories are often very rooted in place, too. Um, she grew up in Florida. A lot of her mm. stories are inspired by that. And you get that sense when you're reading so well. So it's almost like when she's writing, the location itself and the setting itself is almost like a another character, um, which I just find so beautiful. Um, and I, you know, I think in this story, somewhere in the middle of nowhere, I was very much trying to kind of get that sense of place and how it was such an integral part of creating these characters. So I do definitely draw inspiration from her. And then I love George Saunders as well. I just find him. I don't know where he comes up with the concepts of his stories, but he is just wildly original, so hilarious. I don't consider myself a very funny person, but um, I have drawn inspiration <laughs> from him and trying to kind of like okay let's see if i can write something funny so um you know tbd Aww. but <laughs> those are definitely <laughs> funny is funny is hard difficult. yeah i don't think so you don't think so well, well I guess teach it's... us your ways then please well it's up to the writer to, no, I mean, the reader to decide right <laughs> yes i think i'm hilarious no i'm just kidding i'm so kidding um okay well the real last question sorry is TJ. um no, <laughs> this is the one we always do. We have to end here because everybody's expecting it. Because this is the this is the part where you're really like at the at the tennis match, at the at the net. Okay, you're you're at the net with this one. Okay, cut part of this. that out oh, so that boy. I don't sound like this is amazing. Idiot. Okay, <laughs> are you a writer, Melissa? Yes, I don't speak so good. Yeah, we so like yes, to write. We do like a podcast. Um, right. Okay. So you're okay. at the net with this question, and you have got to come up with something that no one else has come up with. No, a piece of advice for our writers, readers, or anyone else who's listening. Your best writing resource or piece of advice that someone needs to know. So I'm going to bore you because what I'm going to say is totally not groundbreaking. And any writer has heard this piece of advice (laughs) countless times. But I say it because I struggle with this sometimes too. And I think it's so important is develop a daily writing habit right every single day. Even if you don't have the motivation. It's just Mm -hmm. one of those things like it's so easy to be like, oh, well, I don't feel like writing today or I just don't have the inspiration and you just don't. And then one day turns into two days, turns into three and so on. Um, And I have like 
I go through these waves and these periods where I am super diligent with it, where I just force myself, even if I'm super busy with work, I'm having a very busy week where I'm just like, nope, I'm writing every single day. And you notice a difference in your writing. Like you see yourself improving every mm -hmm. single day. And like, if there's ever a period of time where I take even just like a week off and I don't do that, like you notice it. Um, so it's not groundbreaking. You're mm -hmm. going to hear it all the time, but it's so important to just do it. And obviously I have to practice when I preach a little bit better, but, um, so this is a good reminder for me as well, but, um, so it's not groundbreaking or original, yeah. but it's important. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> no, I, that is the piece of advice that everyone needs to hear multiple yeah. times. No. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like, because we, we fall into that trap of not doing that. And I've been listening to, um, the audio of Atomic Habits, you know, that's that book that's been out there for a while now. And I absolutely love this idea. It's not about the goal. It follows up on your piece yeah. of advice here, if you don't mind. It is about the system yeah. that you put in place to accomplish that goal. Mm -hmm. And so that you, you want to be a writer, yep. then you make time mm -hmm. for it yeah. every day, right? Mm -hmm. And And every day that you write, every day that you're making time for it, you're getting better. You're getting into a groove where that becomes part of who you are. And then you gain that confidence of you start believing that you're a writer and then that feeds on itself to be a better writer. And I, I just think that that's yeah. really important. And I totally agree with you. Yeah, I agree. Kylie, thank you so much for submitting your story and letting us share it with the world. I'm so happy to have you on the show and really fun chatting with you. Thank you for trusting my work and sharing it with your audience. Um, you know, the path to being an aspiring writer, you get a lot of rejections and a lot of no's. Um, so anytime you get any sort of like positive reinforcement, whether it's a publication or even just positive feedback, it really means a lot. So thank you. I appreciate it. Thank you very much for listening. We hope you enjoyed the show. If so, please do us a huge favor and give us a rating on your favorite podcast app. Also, be sure to tell your writer friends. Ratings and word of mouth are our best tools for expanding the reach of the magazine and podcast. The Story Discovery Podcast is a free narrated podcast of works that appear in Etched Onyx Magazine. Edited by J.W. McAteer, all stories and poems are available at onyxpublications.com. That's O-N-Y-X publications.com. If you're feeling extra generous, you can support us at patreon.com slash onyxpublications or buymeacoffee.com slash onyxpublication with no S. As a nano publishing house, we are always looking for new works to showcase if you'd like to submit a story or poems for consideration, please visit the submissions page on our website. In the meantime, keep reading and writing.